This is the John Favreau is My Daddy podcast with Jessica Garcia and Monica Montoya. Good morning, Monica. Buenos dias, Jessica. <laughs> ¿Cómo estás? Bienvenidos a Disneyland. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. How are you on this fine Saturday morning? I am doing fine. It is very hot in Los Angeles. Yeah. It's, the heat wave is luckily coming to an end, but it's not. It's no bueno. No bueno. It is like 90 something degrees. It's supposed to be fall. It doesn't feel like fall. Actually, what I is. I mean, it's not fall yet, technically. What is the first day of fall? I believe it's like September 24th or something like that. That doesn't sound 21st right. or 24th. The 21st sounds like the winter solstice. I believe it. Yeah. Isn't like December 21st the winter solstice? Yes, but I believe it's the 21st of whatever month it is. Is, is that this, the is season this, change? Yeah. Like the official? Like yeah. the government is like, hey, this is when the season yeah. changes. Aaron, what's the first day of fall? Tell me. Ah, September 22nd is the first oh, day of fall. Oh, September 22nd. All right. Well, on that day, I will expect there to be thunder, lightning. <laughs> I expect there it I to I will wake be. up. All of the leaves will be orange. Exactly. <laughs> And if it doesn't, I'm coming for you, U.S. Government. <laughs> just kidding. It's Los Angeles. Nothing changes. That's true. It just gets brown. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was talking to my boss the other day, and a lot, of, like a lot of my clothes are winter clothes or like fall uh, clothes. Same. Uh, because I don't. A, I don't like summer clothes. I don't like. Likewise, I, I just kind of protest wearing. Them. I love coats and like sweetas. Sweetas. <laughs> Um, and, uh, like big t-shirts. I love jeans. I love slacks, uh-huh. pants, boots. You do love a nice slack. I love a slack, <laughs> especially a slack with a pat, a pattern, um, <laughs> uh, and pockets, some slacks, like the ones from old Navy, they don't uh-huh. have pockets. I don't know Fuck why. Fuck them. Am I Fuck right? Fuck old Navy. <laughs> just kidding. They just did that really amazing thing I know. in all their stores. It's true. What did they do, <laughs> Jessica? Tell our listeners. Uh, old Navy did like a, it's not a rebranding necessarily, but they did like a big, brand act reactivation where they because they used to have all of their plus sizes were more expensive than yeah which is just which is fucked up because i'm not gonna get into it but that's not how clothing is priced it's not priced by how much fabric you use how do you know this jessica because i work in fashion fashion (laughs) we have our very own carrie bridgeshaw (laughs) it's me carrie Um, but so now Old Navy took their prices back down. They like issued a whole apology and they were like, haha, sorry that we did that. Um, and then they totally like rebranded their stores where they now have all of, um, every size is in store, I think, except for like the top, top size, which I think is like 28 or 30. I think oh, that's wow. still only online. Okay. But everything else is all in stores and everything has been remerched. So it's not like there's a plus section. All the sizes are just available together. Oh my God. What? Yeah. In every single store. Wow. Yeah. So that's, I wish that's a cool thing that they did, even though they don't have pockets. On their I socks. wish more stores did that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's where it's the direction things need to move. Yeah. In. Unlike Brandy Melville. <laughs> One size fits most. One size fits all. <laughs> I just remember, I remember so vividly being like, 14 and like mm-hmm. walking into a brandy brandy melville store with like all of my like super super thin thin friends yeah and they would try everything on and my problem was always like i was a runner so like my legs were pretty 
pretty big. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so anytime I would try and fit into like, cause those skinny jeans are like for children. Teeny tiny, yeah. For children. And so I can't imagine what the experience is like for like other folks, but like <laughs> even even for an like for normal sized human beings, for for all all sizes, mm-hmm. no one can shop at that store. No. You I, literally have to be like you have to look like the grasshopper from <laughs> a bug's life. I heard that they added some like because it, it used to be everything was one size fits all yeah. in their store. But um, I heard that they added sizes to some things, but this clothes are actually there. It's just a label. The size didn't actually change. Oh my God. <laughs> what? Exposed. Exposed. <laughs> oh my God. Um. Anyway, the point is though, what were we saying that like got us to this, got us to this time? Oh, you were talking about slacks, your, your fall wardrobe. Oh yes. So I only wear fall clothes or like winter clothes. <laughs> it's proven to be a problem. I've tried to convince Aaron uh, to like make us move to somewhere colder. Right. He refuses. <laughs> I mean, fair. Simply just so that I can wear my clothes <laughs> and not have to stay inside. It's, it's okay. Thing. You just pick your like five summer outfits and you rotate them. I know. That's all I do. <laughs> I wear the same four or five fucking things during the summertime. I always wear like specifically this t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. And like no shoes. Because <laughs> you don't go outside because it's hell out there. It's truly hell. Um, <laughs> for those of you that are experiencing these uh, climate changes. Yeah, LA has been actually pretty tame <gasps> this summer in comparison. Like Seattle got hotter than LA did. Yeah, and like Oregon is experiencing all those terrible like wildfires. And like people are getting flooded in New York. I know. And in Nolens. Yeah. And like everywhere else. So I can't even like... Recycle, guys. <laughs> that's that's literally all it takes. That's all it takes. I'm just kidding. I'm, it's it's really up to the corporations that are like fucking us up. Right yeah, now. truly, <laughs> truly. I'm not going to tell everyone to go out and buy a Tesla. Like that's not the way to solve the problem. It's not. It's it's real. You know what, what? Tesla? It's really not. <laughs> what? Amazon. Amazon. Uh, Jeff Bezos. Hello, Jeff. Uh, hello, Jeff. Jeff? Fix the problem, Jeff. Yeah, he could he could uh, fully fix fix the environment and still have money left over. You so know, that's I read fun. somewhere that he could be Santa Claus, but he refuses to be Santa Claus. Like, yeah, he, of course, he has the money and like the manpower <laughs> to like deliver like one toy to like each child in all of the world. That's insane. But like, he refuses. I don't think I'd be able to comprehend having that much money if I had it. Uh, no one can, because you want to know why? Human beings cannot comprehend numbers that big. Like, no, literally, no, no, no. Literally. I mean, this, yeah, this checks out. Like, like psychologically, we are not equipped. To, <laughs> are, we are not equipped to handle numbers larger than like 10,000 or something. Like, it's kind of insane. Wow. Like we go, oh yeah, that sounds like a lot of money. But then when you stop and think about it, you have like an existential crisis because you're like, wait, correct, a billion is one hundred one millions, and then you're like, no, that's wrong. It's a thousand. It's a thousand millions. <laughs> and then you're like, oh my god, there's a million in each million, and there's a thousand millions to make a billion. That's too many words. You're saying too many words. This is a Dr. Seuss book. This has turned into Quentin Tarantino's The Sneeds. <laughs> well, yeah, so we're doing Quentin Tarantino today. Quentin Tarantino. Um, 
But I'm sure people have complicated feelings about him. I have complicated feelings about him. But we'll get into it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Quentin. Uh, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell, tell us. You. Yeah, tell us. Quentin Jerome <laughs> Tarantino is an American film director, producer, screenwriter, author, film critic, and actor. <laughs> He was born in Tennessee, but grew up in Los Angeles, where his stepfather encouraged his love of movies. He took him to see Deliverance at nine years old, which I feel explains a lot. It really does. It really does. (laughs) After attending acting classes and working a series of odd jobs around LA, including at a video store in Manhattan Beach, Tarantino got his first Hollywood job alongside Roger Avery as a PA for an exercise video, and also co-wrote and directed his first film, My Best Friend's Birthday, which was left uncompleted. He continued working as an independent filmmaker slash screenwriter and small parts actor, but the release of Reservoir Dogs in 1992 and subsequent release of Pulp Fiction in 1993 is what skyrocketed him to success. His films have garnered critical and commercial success, a cult following, and are known for their non-linear storylines, dark humor, stylized violence, extended dialogue, ensemble casts, alternate history, and neo-noir themes. Mm. When Tarantino isn't making movies or defending the numerous controversies they spur, he's writing books, one of which was recently released, and operating two prominent theaters in LA, the New Beverly Cinema and Vista Theater. Oh, and he's also the literal daddy to one baby boy named Leo. That baby is like eight months old. Yeah, and I heard or um he was on he's very recently on Dax Shepard's podcast and I was listening to it and he was talking about how he was so excited to finally show him his son something other than like the five minute like YouTube shorts that they make for like <laughs> kids that small. Mm-hmm. Cause like you don't have, you don't, this, these bitches don't have the attention span. No. Uh, so uh, he was like, we watch like despicable me like 20 minutes at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, it's actually quite entertaining. <laughs> Quit. That child's uh, gonna be so fucking weird. I know, but I'm kind of excited for him. I'm, I'm honestly like I Leo I Tarantino. Live. I feel like is gonna be a name. I'm calling it. You know what? He, he's gonna be like that. You know, um, in the Coppola family, right? Yes, correct. There's like Sophia's son. Uh-huh. I think Christian Coppola. Yes, he's so weird. And like, <laughs> what is his profession? Like, Wait. what? I have to Google him here. And he's like with Kieran and Shipka. Right. He's the one that's like just on Instagram, like filming random crap. Yes, yes, yes. He's always <laughs> with, with Kieran and his girlfriend. Yeah. He's an LA based filmmaker and photographer. Is he though? Is he? <laughs> it's, he oh my God. <laughs> Informed by an early fascination with the Wizard of Oz, Coppola's personal style incorporates dreamy colors and the ever-present dichotomy between home and away. This Murder motherfucker's me. 28 years old and they're giving him style notes. I'm dead. <laughs> See, okay, this is what I'm trying to say. It's like, it's like that. You know how he is like kind of like in the cultural zeitgeist, but we don't know what he's doing. He's just like a floating head. Yes. <laughs> that is what I'm imagining Quentin Tarantino's son's going to end up being. <laughs> it just says under his b- birthday movie is daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It was a, it was a short film with, uh, I think uh, Dylan Sprouse or Coles, one of the Sprouses, the God. one that doesn't have the mead brewery. The uh, D- Dylan, I believe D- the, the other one, one of them. It's called Daddy. It's, it was like filmed in Dylan a- Dylan is in it. Dylan is in it. 
and it was filmed. And he's the one with the metery though. He is the one with the metery? Yeah. Honestly, they're interchangeable in my mind. Well, they are twins. <laughs> um, so uh, Cole is like, the one on Riverdale. Oh, God, I hate that show. <laughs> More on that later. The point is, uh, he f- made this film and they filmed it in like a hotel room mm-hmm. with like Dylan in like makeup and a dress. Yes, I Rand- saw that. And like eating all the room service. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. Wow. And that is what I, what I imagine for the future of Leo Tarantino. Tarantino. Yeah. Leo Tarantino. I mean, it's a good name. They picked a good fucking name. No, they really did. Is his middle name Jerome? (laughs) Jerome. (laughs) I am just so confused by that. Leo, my mother isn't getting a dime. Tarantino. We were talking about this before we started recording, but um, <laughs> Quentin Taran, it like recently came out. I forgot if he said it in an interview or a podcast yeah, or it, an yeah. article, um, but he basically was like, uh, Quentin basically was like, yeah, I'm not giving my mother a fucking dime. <laughs> um, uh, and then obviously it's because um, she like didn't support his yeah. screenplay endeavors or like screenwriting or filmmaking, whatever. She didn't like my script. She didn't like my screenplay. So she doesn't get my money. <laughs> um, so, I mean, to each his own. I right. just find it really funny that he decided to like publicly announce this. <laughs> like everyone, everyone. I am not giving my mother a fucking dime. I mean, the man clearly has no shame about anything. No shame. None. About anything. Oh, man. I'm so excited to talk about this man. Um, but anyway, all this said, I have had complicated feelings about Quentin Tarantino in my lifetime now. And they've differed. When we first started this podcast, you said we're never doing a Quentin Tarantino episode. And I was sad, but I kind of accepted it. Right. And then all of a sudden you were like, I think we should do one. And I, of course, was happy. So she obliged (laughs) as I obliged. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think that for the longest time, I didn't understand what he was trying to do. Right. Um, A lot of that was ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But some of that was like the violence was a little bit too much for me. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of his movies that are a bit too much. I don't deny that. Yeah, and it it sort of pushes me over the edge a little Mm -hmm. bit to the point where I can't enjoy like how fantastic the screenplay is, how fantastic the banter, the dialogue is. Like, I can I can't get pat or I can't get behind it because I can't get past like the violence. Uh I think like as I've gotten older, I've been honestly just more jaded. (laughs) (laughs) I get like that too, where I'm like, I fucking hate this person that I met. No, I like them. I'm just yeah. jealous. That's how I, you know what? I, I, um, I, the way that I feel about Quentin Tarantino is the way that I felt about Taylor Swift. Okay. Where I hated her for the longest time. Yeah. Because she was just really annoying to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to give her a chance. And right. so then I listened to some of her albums and I was like, she's actually quite talented. Like she's a very talented songwriter. Um, and she, and she sings good. (laughs) She, she sings good. Uh, so I am by no means a Swifty, but Quentin Tarantino and Taylor Swift occupy the same place in my heart. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. What about you, Jessica? Do you love him? I love him. I'm very excited to talk about him. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so Monica, let's get into it. Let's get into it, baby. Tell me about our first movie. This is the one, the only. <laughs> this is the single movie. This is the We're only movie. Anything yes. else. We're not doing any other movie. Here it is. Ready? One, yeah. two, three. Reservoir Dogs. Woohoo! It came out in 1992, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. You will hear us say that two more times. <laughs> Six criminals, all with pseudonyms and all strangers to one another, are hired to carry out a robbery. The heist is ambushed by the police, and the gang is forced to shoot their way out. At their warehouse rendezvous, the survivors, realizing that they were set up, try to find the traitor in their midst. This is the only movie I hadn't seen. So I'd seen all Tarantino films up to this point, except for Reservoir Dogs. And um, what a treat. This pleasantly surprised. This is genuinely a, an iconic movie. <laughs> yeah, it like is. a lot of a lot of cues that other films in the future from 1992 uh-huh. have taken have been <laughs> from this movie. Yeah, um, like a lot of this, a lot of the scenes with the dogs, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of these like influences came from this movie, which yeah. I just find to be like. Be can you imagine like being a, a writer director and having like your film become a staple and like a reference in hundreds of other movies that yeah. came out since then? Exactly, it's just ridiculous. It's considered one of the best heist movies of all time, which is really particularly fascinating because you don't actually see the heist, no, at um, all, and that's <laughs> why it's so impressive. The things that Tarantino is able to do with things that you don't see is incredible. It's absolutely incredible because usually you'd be like, okay, I have to show my fucking audience this, but this motherfucker right out of the gates, he's like, I'm going to trust these people who've never seen my work before to just, to just know. It's ballsy. (laughs) I mean, it's ballsy. It takes like a certain level of confidence to, to not tell your audience a thing and expect Mm -hmm. them to trust you. Cause it's, it's literally just based on trust between filmmaker and Mm -hmm. audience member. And the filmmaker is like, I trust you to be smart enough and with it enough to understand what's happening. And I'm not going to treat you like a child. I'm going to, I'm just going to show you very little Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not tell you anything. Yes. And I, (laughs) love filmmakers who trust their audiences very bullsy i love it so much it makes me feel respected as a viewer (laughs) there is nothing worse i mean there are many worse things but there's nothing worse (laughs) than a movie that just explains every single thing every motivation to you it's completely in your face yeah there is nothing left to ponder you're kind of just like oh you threw that at me great yes wonderful the only movies i will accept clear explanation from are things that get into very technical topics like monica you and i had to watch the big short recently yes. for an upcoming episode yes movies like that where it's like it tell was me a, it was a thing that happened that a lot of people don't understand so i'm going to in an artful way explain it to you that's when i accept it but other than that like no keep your explanations away from me yeah another good example i mean the wolf of wall street (laughs) yes another great example of um like over explaining because the topics are so insane (laughs) yeah 
And if they don't overexplain, it'll be a 10 hour movie. Yeah. Or like interstellar, <laughs> right? Like right. tell me what a black hole is. I don't know. <laughs> what the fuck is a wormhole? What the fuck is space? <laughs> It's like that same, it's the same concept, but Quentin Tarantino does this beautiful, beautiful thing where he just trusts you to understand Mm -hmm. what the fuck's going on. And Reservoir Dogs is not really a, I can't confidently say that it's about anything specific. No. It's just like, (laughs) it's, it's really hard to explain. It's like slice of life in the middle of this moment in time. It's capturing a moment. It's capturing a moment in time and you are in on the action, but still a spectator. It is kind of insane. Yeah. And it really, I mean- Granted, it was his first film, but it really defined him as a filmmaker. It defined his genre of film because Tarantino is a very specific kind of movie. Like his movies cross genres, but I feel like Tarantino is a genre all into itself. Oh, 100%. <laughs> because you kind of know exactly what you're getting into when someone tells you it's a Tarantino movie. Absolutely. Um, like his writing style was very distinct, like he's he's just such he's such a brilliant writer and i think you can complain or a lot of people complain about like the crassness of his writing at times but i find it to be like very alive and very very magnetic and chaotic yeah and even though like he he made this thing his signature of like kind of talking about nothing yeah but you don't care that it's about nothing because it's so good. It feels so important and so good. Like the whole, the first fucking 10 minutes of this movie are them having a conversation about Madonna's like a virgin. And you're like, this has no bearing upon the rest of the story, but so much is revealed about the characters through just talking about nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, uh, something that really reminds me of that, that's not quite exactly, Mm -hmm. um, but gives me like the essence is, um, a lot of the writing in like Gilmore girls Mm -hmm. where they're literally talking about nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's just references and like zingers and kind of like this, this banter between two people that are incredibly comfortable with each other and understand like where their buttons are and and likes to push them and and like oftentimes ripping them out of the system and crushing them like it's really cool to see this kind of dialogue appear in other places and it especially works in Quentin's films because of the juxtaposition with all the things that they're doing like they're having these casual specifically in like in Reservoir Dogs and honestly in all of his movies they're having these casual conversations about nothing where the banter is excellent like the, Mm -hmm. the back and forth is glorious and they're they're not talking about anything too specific it's nothing too important, but because of the way that they're handling the, the energy exchange between mm-hmm. the two actors or the three actors or whoever's involved, it's they're doing that at the same time, doing something incredibly violent mm-hmm. or incredibly illegal yeah. or, <laughs> or like incredibly <laughs> grotesque. Like the juxtaposition between both of those things is very, very alive yes. and kind of unnerving, but also incredibly thrilling and it's really thrilling and it's one of the reasons why i kind of i really question people who critique specifically this part of his filmmaking of like well it's just not about anything or it's taking so long or i'm bored etc because his dialogue isn't like i'm not learning anything and i'm like but I don't know. I think we've been so conditioned with the entertainment that we, everything has to have a point at all times. And then I'm just kind of like, well, you're kind you're, you're missing the entire point of his filmmaking style. If you think that every word is supposed to move us somewhere. Precisely. Exactly. So yeah, 
that's that's a little bit about his his like initial dialogue style that shows up first and foremost in this film because yeah. this is technically his first I, feature. I, th- I think like the the best example that people give of this specific thing because everyone's seen Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. is the fucking scene with the, where they're talking about the Royale with cheese. Like that's <laughs> the one people always point to, and it's the same thing. They're on their way to assassinate someone like literally to moidy someone <laughs> to moidy someone and they're talking about this they're talking about a fucking cheeseburger exactly yeah and in this movie they're about to go commit like a big heist a big old crime a huge old heist crime. they're they're essentially all gangsters yes right but they're like a lot more slick they're very cool they're all wearing suits like cool is very much an aesthetic in this film uh-huh. they're all like slick and like they're wearing these black suits and they walk like with a lot of conviction it's very snappy i really love it i love there's so much energy in this movie it is so beautiful and entertaining to watch and they're all they're all like fast talking like loud mouthed very um knowledgeable Mm -hmm. spirited men that are all (laughs) having these like incredible conversations yeah but like all on their way to go commit like the ultimate crime right (laughs) it's funny like we make fun of you know, like straight white male film bros all the time. And often like one of the movies you point to is like Pulp Fiction or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Where you're like, hey, you have a fucking Pulp Fiction poster on your wall. But then I do think about Reservoir Dogs and I think about like if I were a dude and I saw this movie from this director for the first time, I'd probably really want to be like that too. Not just that, but like, (laughs) I I would try to adopt as much of it into my life as humanly possible. Exactly, because they're so fucking cool. They're so cool. They have the suits. Like Michael Madsen in this movie is fucking iconic. He looks like, he he has almost like like an Elvis quality to him where he's wearing the suit and he makes violence look so cool. And the way that Quentin puts music in his movies, that's also something he's really well known for. The man understands music he gets it he really gets it and like the different roles it can play no matter what kind of style it is like this movie is fucking cool and i would want to be just like anybody in this movie 100 (laughs) percent and i kind of hate that i'm saying that because we shit on so much of this but like that's true it can't lie yeah (laughs) there's also like the element of of time in this movie like Mm -hmm. it's it's very you were kind of catch yourself holding your breath a lot during this film right because there's just a lot going on and a, a a big part of how quentin tarantino uses time in his movies is like either like non-linearly mm-hmm. or like not even through flashbacks but literally like literally just chopping up the story and picking it up at a certain yeah. point each time so very much not in flashback form right? right so as you're watching the movie you are watching it as it's being presented you are not taking you're not being transported to a different time. No. You're literally just sitting there existing, being a spectator to this film. Yeah, and seeing like what he chooses to show you when. Yes. Yeah. But it is not in any way like, oh, now it's going to flashback. No, it just no. kind of starts happening. It just you're happens. Like, oh, okay. Through context clues, I know that this happened an hour ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then the next scene will be like two days later or yes. something. So you, again, the trust is there where he goes, you know what? You were smart enough to know that this was two days ago. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can look at a calendar on the wall or figure out that they're not wearing the same clothes or like the clothes are pre-bloodied or mm-hmm. some, like something's different. Like, there you go. Yeah. He, he, this is this is what I will 
show to you. Exactly. You determine what is right. Yeah. So he really establishes this whole like nonlinear thing that he loves to do in most of his movies. And then he also really establishes his feelings about violence in this movie. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, I respect his approach to it. And I think the way that he did it in this movie was very intelligent in kind of telling audiences what to expect from his style. Yeah. Like the torture scene in this movie is very, <clears throat> I mean, iconic is the wrong word, but it is in a way. Unfortunately. <laughs> like it's, it's really well known. And I know it's a lot, but like, if you're going to do a scene like this, I think this is a really, really smart way to do it because right before you actually see any of the actual torture, which to be clear is Michael Madsen cutting off someone's ear. Yeah. Um, the camera just turns to the wall, but you still hear it all happening in the background. And I think that's kind of, I think it's a little like badass in a way of Tarantino yeah. kind of being like, this is what my movies are. Even if I choose to sh like not show it, you're still going to experience it. So if you want to watch my movies, buckle the fuck up. It's a little bit like being like a defiant, <laughs> petulant child. Yeah. It's a little bit like that of being this, like I can imagine him coming from the, from the mentality of like, I'm just a defiant teenage boy who wants things my way or the highway. Yeah. Like you either watch it the way I want you to watch it or you fucking don't. Uh -huh. Period. End of discussion. <laughs> um, which it's both badass and a little ballsy and also like just defiant in nature. Yeah. I think a lot of artists in general have come from a place of defiance. Like mm -hmm. I will not like, being rebellious and going like, I will not do this thing that you want me to do the way that you want me to do it. I will do it my way. Even if it's literally just to not, yeah. like even if there's no motivation behind it, even if it's literally just because fuck you. Yeah. Like I, I respect Quentin Tarantino a lot for that, that ability to just be like, because fuck you. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily be like <laughs> people talk about like the intentionality behind his films a lot being like everything is so intentional and like everything like it's like fucking chess pieces in his movie. Yes, sure. With a lot of it. But I think sometimes you as the audience member can get a little taste of him just being like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it because it's cool. Yeah. Like, yes, I am intending to give you all this violence, but there isn't really a reason. It's just because I want to. No. And there's, <laughs> you know, especially in, specifically in Reservoir Dogs, where you first see it all, there's not a lot of rhyme or reason. No. Because the plot is a plot. It's not really. <laughs> there are a lot of things happening around, like the, the dialogue is all happening around the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And like, everything is very nonlinear and like the, they're all like in black suits with the very skinny black ties. And that, black that's tie. literally all you can focus on. You can only focus <laughs> on that and what they're saying and the violence. And a lot of it is like, he, he chooses to show you what he wants to show you when he wants to show it to you. Yes. And that's kind of that. And you, there's something, there's a lot of bravado around being able to just accept, like he wants to just be this like peacock mm -hmm. and then, run back into his foxhole yeah <laughs> and that's okay and i yeah. think being shown these really insane and intense moments in this film that's kind of about nothing <laughs> uh -huh. is really fucking ballsy and entertaining and like to do things just because they're cool in and of itself is highly intentional yeah and very very fun and very thrilling yeah like i think all in all quentin tarantino is 
a lot of his movies do have a point and a story. Like yeah. after this, they're very story driven in a yes. lot of ways. But he is one of those filmmakers that I'm like, when I just kind of want to feel alive, I want to watch a Tarantino movie. Or rather, that's the feeling I come away with whenever I see one. Yeah. And that's a really good feeling to have like I do understand why so many people hold him up on a pedestal because if I was trying to be an independent filmmaker I'd fucking look to him like look at what he did with his first movie on like no budget nothing <laughs> literally incredible nothing. yeah so so yeah I think I think all in all this gives you a really glorious first taste of what he can do yeah I think there are a lot of other films and we're going to talk about a couple more that show his storytelling abilities and like his, his, his writing abilities a lot better Mm -hmm. than Reservoir Dogs. I think with Reservoir Dogs, it was a, a lot of it was just showing us what he can do with his camera Mm -hmm. and what he, and establishing his style, establishing the violence, establishing the dialogue, establishing his just rebellious nature. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then you can really see what he can do. And we're not going to talk about it in this episode because we've already talked about it for someone else, but like for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. though these are movies that you watch and you go, I mean, the script, above all things, the script, the script and the fucking stories mm-hmm. are phenomenal. So, yeah. Yeah. Residuals. <laughs> so now we're going to move to what I think you and I have agreed is like the sleeper hit of his filmography. Sleeper hit. Yeah. Yeah, so this movie is Jackie Brown. It came out in 1997, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, based on the novel Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. When flight attendant Jackie Brown, played by Pam Greer, is busted smuggling money for her arms dealer boss, Ordell Robbie, played by Samuel L. Jackson, agents Ray Nicolette, played by Michael Keaton, and detective Mark Dargis, played by Michael Bowen, want her help to bring him down. Facing jail time for her silence or death for her cooperation, Brown decides instead to double-cross both parties and make off with the smuggled money. Meanwhile, she enlists the help of bail bondsman Max Cherry, played by Robert Forster, a man who has fallen in love with her despite her plan. Sleeper hit. <gasps> what a plot! This is... Okay, so, so again, doing this fucking 180 into, yeah. like, this is a plot. Yeah. This has, like, moving parts, moving pieces. Pe- there are fucking... St- takes everyone everyone has a really clear and really dicey motivation yeah (laughs) this is this is where we take a movie like reservoir dogs where everything is kind of just happening around happening around this heist that's not really like much of a plot into something that is highly story driven and follows a very clear plot and it's like this is this is the story hop on the train we will get to the we will all get to the same destination it is okay yeah and quentin has said about this movie that this is a movie that you come to like more the more times you see it and i really do think that's true i've seen it i think three or four times now and the first time i was like i like this movie but i spent the whole time figure trying to figure out what was happening because it is a rather complicated plot yeah there's again moving pieces there's so many moving pieces and pam greer who plays jackie brown she's amazing but she is straddling all of the plots because she's playing everyone in like to eventually benefit herself yes but she's so good at playing everyone else you're as the audience member you're kind of going like well is she being honest with that one person (laughs) yeah i don't really know so the first time you're trying to figure out just what's happening 
And then the more times you see it, you can appreciate everything. And I think that's so, so true. Like if you're going to watch Jackie Brown, watch it three times. Watch it like (laughs) 5,000 times in a row. Um, The thing that I love about this movie is that every single character in this film is super fucking smart. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is so intelligent to the point where, again, the reason why you have to watch it so many times is because everyone is trying to outsmart each other every single minute of every single second of this movie. Yeah, yeah, or like they're all at the top of as smart as the plot would let them be. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> like like um, Bridget Fonda's character, she yes. basically plays Samuel L. Jackson's like, <laughs> like side bitch. Like, like, like side squeeze. Yeah, like, side squeeze. Like uh, s- squeeze denominator. Yeah, he has multiple squeezes and she's just like the one who's in that area. Yeah. Um, she's like kind of dumb, but she's as smart as she could possibly be. She is as smart as Quentin Tarantino allows her to be yeah. to showcase the smartness of everyone else. Correct. Yes. And he does that with every single character and it's really, really fun to watch, but he does it in unexpected ways. And I love how he like recontextualizes actors that we've seen before. Yes. Like when I was talking about this movie with Aaron, cause he's never seen it. Right, Aaron? I was telling him, I was like, this is one of the most unique roles I've ever seen Robert De Niro in. Oh, oh, 100%. Yeah. Robert D <laughs> is in this movie in a sleeper hit performance. Yes. Where he is genuinely giving it his all, mm-hmm. but in the most unexpected way. <laughs> yeah, like, because what I, what I told Aaron, I was like, every Robert De Niro movie is a Robert De Niro movie. Exactly. But like, this is not a Robert De Niro movie. This is just a movie that he happens to be in. And the role that he plays is like very passive, very quiet. He like, he's not the leader and he's kind of lost, which is not something you usually experience with him. And then when he gets violent, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, because he's like, he's like a an ex-con, an ex-convict. Exactly. Kind of a guy who's like, he was like really like sullen and like <laughs> not as like in it. He's not all the way there anymore, guys. Like he's just kind of—he kind of seems tired. Yeah, all he's time. like tired. I really relate to him in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah totally. He's—he—he <laughs> he also doesn't even look the way that you expect Robert Tiner to look all the time. No, like he's wearing weird Hawaiian shirts a lot. He's like—he's pulling like a Dr. Jacoby from like Twin Peaks moment. Yes, yes, that's the those perfect vibes, description. You know what I mean? Like he's really encompassing those vibes. Yes, in this movie. Yes. Exactly. And I love how Quentin Tarantino cast these people in really unexpected ways. And he does it time and time again. Like he did it with John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And he kind of resurrects people's careers, not maybe not entirely all the time, but in different contexts. Yes. Like he brought to light parts of these actors that I never would have seen before. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that a, a big part of this movie that makes me kind of squirm a little bit uh-huh. are all of the scenes where there all of the violence is introduced in the most like it starts off in the most subtle of ways <laughs> and, then, and then it just hits you over the head like a fucking pan yeah like like what's that one bitch's name rapunzel entangled where she's just like 
she just like runs out of the closet and like bangs that guy's head yeah. as she as he like enters into her tower. It's like that. <laughs> <laughs> it is like that, but that's also something that's become his signature, you know? 100%. Is all of a sudden violence. Like when we were watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I was like, cool, we've been here for two and a half hours and there has not been a single violent scene. When is this going to happen? It's true. And then, and then it all sudden. happens at the end. <laughs> and I know we're not talking about that movie, but there's so much about that movie that really encompasses everything that people love Correct. about Quentin Tarantino. And just the sheer fact that he closed down like all of Los Angeles. <laughs> to film his yep. little his little movie <laughs> yep is just insane it's just I, I, I don't even want to know how much money he spent a boy playing with his toys just you a know boy playing with his toys trying boy to make it look toys. cool <laughs> let's make it look cool guys exactly. <laughs> um jackie brown i think one of the reasons why it's so important is because it's an introduction of a film style that quentin hadn't referenced as directly in the past and that's his love of black exploitation movies yes which Quentin's relationship with the black community is very um, dicey. I would I would say dicey. I would say it's a little bit, what's the word, like tumultuous. Yeah, it's interesting because some people I hear, they're like super respect him. Others are just like, this is unnecessary. Yeah. So, and I'm sure it's valid either way. I think, um, I think it's, it's very valid to yeah. say that he being in the position that he is being who he is being just like a straight cis white man yeah like it's very hard to give him the benefit of the doubt oh absolutely with any yeah. <laughs> with any of the choices in his films involving black people or the way in which he uses black people or tells black stories correct like it's really difficult to give him the benefit of the doubt just because of his background and who he is and where right. he comes from um i just think that like with specifically Jackie Brown, I think I personally, I'm like not in a position to talk about how this makes me feel because I'm not, I'm not a black, sure. I'm not a black person. So I think a lot of this is like, I'm coming at it from the, from the angle of having massive respect for the storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of moments in this film, particularly where I'm kind of like, Hmm, interesting. But I think <laughs> mm -hmm. that, I think that I feel that way a lot of the times when he does, when he uses black actors and tries to sort of like commandeer black stories or right. like create, create narratives with, with, with black actors. Like it, it's hard because he does cross the line sometimes. Oh, 1000%. And I think with specifically Jackie Brown, he's, I think in his mind, he's paying homage and like yes. doing, you know, painting, you know, writing a love letter to the black black exploitation films. But the fact that he even felt the need to write a love letter to black exploitation right. films is a little bit unsettling. And like, I don't know that that was necessarily his place to do so. No, totally. I think I can only imagine that in his mind, it's just like, I just love the movies. So I wanted to make one. Right. I think he didn't realize as much as he thought about it. Yeah. The um, impact. He didn't realize like the impact of what that might mean to like other groups of people. Right. The thing that I do have a lot of respect for is that Pam Greer is a was a huge star in black exploitation movies back uh, in the day. Yes. Um ten out of ten. I fucking love this she woman. She is just a fucking star 
star. She's like, amazing. A goddamn bona fide star. Amazing. She's and so bright. She's so beautiful. She's so like quick witted in this movie. She's so smooth. She's so <laughs> smooth. Like every word that comes out of her mouth is so it's like it's like dancing out of her mouth. Yes. She's the way that she tells stories and like offers dialogue and mm-hmm. like respond to the other actors. Like it's so silky smooth yes and i love that he was like i'm gonna adapt this novel i'm gonna make a black exploitation movie i'm going to use this former black exploitation star who's a female and uplift her and make her like the mastermind she's the the smart one she's the one playing everybody and that is the thing that i do respect because i think quentin gets a lot of shit particularly about women sometimes and that's not to say that's not to say that it's unfounded it's very much like (laughs) for sure yes he, the way he treats women in his films sometimes is is a little bit unacceptable. Yeah, but I do on some of these movies where I'm like, it's a huge revenge plot that he, I mean, he's say he's saying that these women are very intelligent and they are the masterminds, and I do like respect that at moments, especially in this one where he took us an actress whose career had died essentially. Yeah, well, and, because the movies that she was participating in were no longer being made. Exactly, and put her in this and like totally resurrected her career for a hot second. And like Pam is just a fucking live, like she's a legend. An icon. She's a fucking legend. Yeah. Like it's, it's really hard not to enjoy a movie that she's in because she's so goddamn good. So like this movie, despite all of its many, many flaws, mm-hmm. specifically like with the involvement of like black stories and black exploitation films and like their influence and yeah. a, a, a white man trying to make a movie <laughs> like that. Like despite all of that, I think the fact that it got to showcase Pam in specifically this light where she is like the puppeteer, she's the puppet master, like she's the manipulator. She is the, the mastermind, the person who's like, who's the, the smartest Fox of all the, of all the Foxes. Yeah. Like it's very, very cool to see that and to watch her just shine. Yeah. She gets the love story. She gets to run away with the money. She gets the cutest costume. She gets the cutest costume. She does some like cool fight scenes. She's like so strong. She's fucking awesome. She's sitting there outsmarting Samuel L. Jackson. Their chemistry, the chemistry so that Pam Gray and Samuel L. Jackson have is fucking amazing. Off the charts. There's this one scene that I think of specifically where they they meet up in a bar and and she's just explaining to him like how she's been dealing with the police and everything she's saying is incriminating him further. And she's just like, yeah, that's what I told him. <laughs> and he's like, you what? <laughs> but he knows already that like she has him by the balls. So he can't really do anything. <laughs> Amen. And it's so magical because I don't, I feel like you don't get to see people turn the tables on that kind of dynamic a lot of the time, especially no with people of color. Yeah. Like you don't get to see the woman be like, I fucking got you. I, you couldn't got, you big got, I got you. <laughs> it's so good. Oh God. Yeah. So this movie got, got me. It, it got, got me too. It's I, really, it's, it's, I got, really got. Good. And this is the movie um, that after it was released, Spike Lee was like, um, Quentin, we should not use the N-word 38 times. Yes. And I do want to address that because I completely agree. 1,000% oh, agree with him. I absolutely agree. And the thought of, okay, this is this is my, my biggest beef. Yeah. The thought of Quentin Tarantino sitting alone, like smoking in his bedroom, <laughs> typing out the N-word yeah. like 5,000 times yeah. 
and then probably saying it out loud to make sure that it's uh-huh. like it's it has like the full effect within the within you know some screenwriters like Correct. will talk out loud to make sure that, that the dialogue is like mm-hmm. actually real yeah. dialogue um <laughs> the thought of that makes me cringe into oblivion yes. um i i don't i just don't think it was necessary at all like no. at all um I don't know that it even needed to be in this movie. No. Written by him and directed by him. I just don't think that that needed to happen. No, his whole thing is like, when you give a word that much power, blah, 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 which like is an argument that I can see for other words. But I think for words like fuck or or shit (laughs) or Catholicism. (laughs) But like... When I I just don't think it's like a white person's place to decide that. Absolutely not. Like, and, and you can say, because a lot of people be like, well, Samuel L. Jackson endorses it. Like he said, you know, like that's how people talk. So it's fine. I have no problem with it, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, but it's, it's still not up for Quentin to decide that. It's not. You know, so someone should have stopped him. Cor- correct. <laughs> someone That's how I feel on that matter. Like genuinely, someone should have stopped him. Um, or at the very least, he should have. He should have gotten the thing that I don't understand about specifically this movie mm-hmm. is why Quentin Tarantino did not co-collaborate with a black screenwriter and a black director to create this movie because it wasn't his story to tell no i mean because that's not how he thinks about things i know and and it's absolutely not and it's not in his it's not in his best interest to collaborate with anyone because he does his best work solo but like genuinely for a movie specifically like this i have no but beyond the fact that he doesn't like to collaborate with people um (laughs) i have no idea why he didn't just do that because i think that that would have that would have made for a much more authentic story. And I think it would have, I think it would have still had all of the flair right. and the gravitas of a Quentin Tarantino film with the authenticity and integrity of a black human being telling a black narrative yeah, and with black actors and, and offering dialogue that maybe Quentin Tarantino, like actually absolutely Quentin Tarantino had no business like writing yeah, um, or you know, I, I, just, I just, I think there is no use in like going, turning back the, the <laughs> clock and going, Quentin, you should have done this because honestly, I don't know that he would have listened. <laughs> no. And the thing, the thing is, is like, he couldn't have, he can't make that movie now because that's just, n- nobody would allow it. No one would allow it. <laughs> or if he did, he'd get like hardcore canceled. Oh, 100%. Um, then in 1997, unfortunately, that's just like not something that people cared about or like yeah. thought to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, the end. Oh, Quentin. <laughs> Quentin. So yeah. So even though we love a lot of things about Quentin. Yeah. Do not endorse this aspect. <laughs> no one endorse this, please. No. If you're going to put up posters on your wall, uh, of Quentin Tarantino's movies, just remember that he has flaws like any human being. He, he do be flawed. And you should hold him accountable to these flaws, especially yeah. if they are flaws that are harming other groups of people. Agreed. That's just the way, baby. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> okay, Monica, let's move to the final film. The last and final film yes. is probably my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie it's of all time. Uh, I have seen this probably about a thousand times with specifically my dad and brothers. I'm not, I mean, you know what? I was going to say, I don't know why they were so interested (laughs) in this movie. Because again, this is a movie that I watched like in junior high 
through high school right like very casually it's a very gory movie <laughs> yeah, this movie it doesn't i mean it has key like climactic moments of violence but it's violent the whole it's like time. violent the entire time like this Correct. movie is relentless yes <laughs> um and that movie is inglorious bastards yes it came out in 2009 written and directed by quentin tarantino what what <laughs> again him again uh, uh. Are you sure? Did you write this down right? Yeah, I did. I, I promise. Are you sure? No other screen, screenwriters? No others? <laughs> None. No other directors? Probably just Robert Rodriguez, like, hiding under Quentin's desk, giving him ideas every now and again. And doing other things. Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> In German-occupied France, young Jewish refugee Shoshana Dreyfus, played by Melanie Laurent, witnesses <laughs> the slaughter of her family by Colonel Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz. Narrowly escaping with her life, she plots her revenge several years later when German war hero Frederick Zoller, played by, or Zola. <laughs> I, think, I think it's just Zola. Zola. <laughs> played by Daniel Bruhl. Takes a, first of all, I don't know why Jessica gave me this one because every I name just, in- the, I do it. <laughs> I knew you were going to complain about this. <laughs> every name is so hard to pronounce and I can't pronounce anything. Daniel Bruhl. Daniel Bruhl takes a rapid interest in her and arranges an illustrious movie premiere at the theater she now runs. With the promise of every major Nazi officer in attendance, the event catches the attention of the Bastards, a group of Jewish-American guerrilla soldiers laid by the ruthless Lieutenant Aldo Rain, played by the one and only <laughs> Brad Pitt. But sure, no. <laughs> As the relentless executioners advance and the conspiring young girl's plans are set in motion, their paths will cross for a fateful evening that will rewrite history. Yes. Ah, yes. The rewriting of history. What he loves to what do. What he loves to do. Because history the first time apparently didn't work for him. <laughs> Was kind of bad. Kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man okay this movie is there's so much going on in this movie <laughs> some might say there's too much going on in this. yeah movie. you could you could argue that i do think there could have been a moment of editing of a hey quentin are you can we just clip a little bit of no genuinely <laughs> i mean let's just start with like how long this movie is this is a very it's long nearly film. three hours long it's nearly three hours long and y'all know that we advocate for a tight 90 <laughs> there are movies that are almost that long that i feel like i'm a, that i'm very okay with like i'm really okay with wolf of wall street being that long i'm really okay with once upon a time in hollywood being that long this one you feel the length you feel it you feel it in your legs <laughs> i think it's because it's a war movie honestly like right it, it just it just feels long it's really really <laughs> hard it's also like it, it's very this movie is very like what's the word like audacious yeah and and very like large in scale big in scope <laughs> big scope big scope um and it, it kind of it, it oftentimes the reason why I think it's a little bit too long is because it's like sometimes it fights to hold your attention. Right. Because you're like, oh my God. If your brain even for a second thinks I'm tired, <laughs> the movie does not have you. <laughs> and this is this is my biggest beef with this movie is that I genuinely think it's like 15 or 20 minutes too long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, luckily, <laughs> he does continue to do 
I mean, he just continues to do a good job of leading you through the story despite it being too long. Indeed. I feel like, and building up to the multiple climaxes. And I think that's hard, especially in a movie of this length, because there are multiple moments where it really peaks. But he does a really good job of leading you up there and kind of piecing things together, especially in the beginning. The beginning is like, a 20 minute exposition it's a whole fucking thing it's quite it's like a chapter you i mean know, this movie is told in chapters is it isn't yeah it? yeah yeah and you know what it is it's like have you if you've ever seen like uh those really early walt disney animated films like snow white or robin mm-hmm. hood it's like you know how the title sequence is like way too long it's <laughs> yeah. like fucking 10 minutes long or like even the aristocats that title sequence is too long <laughs> It's like that, but literally just the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Not the, not even the title sequence. Exactly. Just you're in the movie and it's too long. Yeah, it's long and it's slow, but I appreciate that in this movie because like, I think Quentin was very aware that he didn't want people to think he was like trivializing this point in history. Right. And I do think he did a really good job of that. Like the way that he slowly builds to establish fear yeah. is- really really rewarding and legitimately scary like that first 20 minutes is Christoph Waltz being the scariest man alive yes and trying to find a Jewish family that's hidden under the floorboards of this house in France and it's so scary it's beyond scary smiling for so much of it (laughs) and you're just thinking to yourself like why are you smiling where is this going where is this going what is your purpose exactly and he spends all this time building building the fear, building the stress, and he's got those close-ups of everyone's face and they're like kind of and sweating. The, the tension is just fucking bubbling over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, really brilliant. So when it finally climaxes and then you see Shoshana running away, and then you get the title card and you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Holy shit is right. Holy shit. You know, and I'll take a second to talk about like the bastards, the best outs themselves. They're very scrappy Mm -hmm. and like they give off like Brady Bunch vibes. We kind of do. In a way, like they each have their own like distinct personality. Yeah. Um, And I, Brad Pitt in this movie is just yummy. (laughs) I never thought I needed to see Brad Pitt in like a war movie of this kind. But you know what? I did. I did. I did. I didn't know I needed it until it was in front of my face. And then you know what? I ate that up. Every crumb. (laughs) I left the plate clean. Despite his terrible accent. I know. (laughs) This terrible Southern accent. All the accents in this movie are like kind of insane. Amazing. They're amazing. They're insane. (laughs) But I love that it's all the American people who are doing the insane work because everyone else is authentic. Like yeah. Christoph Waltz is Austrian. Yes. And Melanie Laurent is French. And yes. fucking Daniel Brühl's German, etc. But the Americans are it's, the ones who are ridiculous. And I, I, I love that because that was totally intentional. Oh, 100%. It's like we're watching this insane off-Broadway <laughs> play about World War II. And all of these actors are like fresh out of NYU being like, this is what I think the accent should be. <laughs> 
like ah. genuinely <laughs> and honestly you have to you have to smile and at how endearing that is. it really is endearing because i mean like obviously brad pitt could have done a serious job like oh, he's more than capable he also like has the money for the coach and like <laughs> exactly it definitely it, it is what it is but it's, he's supposed to be ridiculous and he's supposed to be insane i, I respect that i respect i have that. much respect for senior brad pitt yeah yeah um I think what this movie is particularly indicative of is like Quentin, what Quentin can do with a humongous budget. With like a budget bigger than the size of Kansas. Correct. Because I mean, some of his other movies were larger budget films, of course, but this was fucking huge. This was massive. The number of locations in this film. (laughs) And like a lot of it, I believe was shot on location. That would make sense. Yeah. He seems like someone who would insist upon that. Oh, you mean like shutting down a piece of Los Angeles? <laughs> Being like, no, I must turn everything back into what it looked like in 1969. <laughs> Not like literally only using CGI for some things. Correct. Making the signs for everything. Uh-huh. Turning it back into what it once looked like at some point, but yeah. not now. <laughs> I mean, he did an incredible job to the point where some people kept their kept the shit up. They kept it up. Yeah. And they said, you know what? This is better. This is better. <laughs> Thank you, Quentin. <laughs> Thank you, Daddy Quentin. Thank you, Toronto. <laughs> Thank you, Jerome. <laughs> but yeah, this movie, huge budget. The the cast itself is humongous. Enormous. Full of stars. Chuck full. Enormous cast. I love that so many of them are authentically like from the country. Like, yes. fucking, I love seeing Diane Kruger just speaking German. I know. So good. Who knew we needed that? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> but yeah, like, and, and, oh God, it's just really rewarding where you can tell that a director knows how much is at stake and delivers. Yes. Like it is a very satisfying feeling to watch these movies because it would fucking suck if you saw this movie and you saw the scale and then it was not that great. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> but it was, it was that great. I think, I think a, a, a big part of this movie is focused on the war, but also really not focused on the war. It's no. like, it's, it's not even really a about the war. It's a revenge plot. It's literally just, <laughs> you killed my family. You killed my family. And now I'm missing natural revenge <laughs> in the most dramatic way possible. <laughs> I will set you all on fire. And I will watch you burn. <laughs> Except, spoiler alert, she does also die. Yes. But those Nazis still burn. So The Nazis still die. Mission it's accomplished. Fine. Mission accomplished, Melody. <laughs> melody (laughs) um yeah it's it it, much like the rest of his movies Uh it's not always about the thing that it's about no and uh, the thing is is like you can see where it's going and you can see the end coming but with him i don't really care because he does such a wonderful and rewarding job of setting you up for this delicious climax that you're like, I'm just going to accept this. Like you're sitting there and you're going, okay, it, this feels really long. There's a lot of ex- extraneous scenes. There's so much could be fluff. Cut out. Like it's ge- genuinely so much fluff. Yes. So much fluff for like a single reference later in the movie. Yeah. For, uh, yes. Yes. Thank you. It's like all of this fluff for, for either, either nothing, like no payoff. Exactly. Or like the tiniest pee 
of a reference. Like an hour later. Like I, I'm obsessed with the scene where they're all in the bar with Diane oh Kruger's character and the big shootout. Like an Diane. amazing scene, but it's all so that Christoph Waltz can see her shoe and know that she was there. When he could have just walked in and seen her shoe. Or just seen her there and been like, either Maha. or. <laughs> But no. <laughs> but no, we needed a whole fucking scene. It feels like 10 minutes long. It's so long and they're playing the fucking game with the cards on their head and they had to do the signal of the the three. The three. <laughs> Dry glazer. <laughs> I just like slowly lifted. <laughs> so good. There had to be that, which is so smart and it's so brilliant, but it has no fucking bearing over There's what happens no, in the rest of the movie. It's so useless, Jessica. It's so it's It happens so that everyone in that scene can die, but none of them needed to die. Like none of them. They could have just disappeared for all we know. <laughs> that scene could have just not existed, but it was for that one sneaky little clue to happen later. Zishu. And like, but you don't even care because you're like, first of all, the scenes that are in this are so amazing. And they're so entertaining. They're so entertaining. And then you feel like you're in on a secret because you're like, oh fuck, the shoe. He's a the shoe fucking earlier. shoe. The zapato. <laughs> Quentin makes you feel like you're in on the secrets of the I movie. Know. Which is really nice. And then he he just he gives you this incredible climax where you're just like, yeah, I'm gonna watch him all fucking burn. Thank you, Quentin. <laughs> burn, baby. Uh he loves setting people on fire. He loves setting people on fire. He loves like yeah, that's it. No, that's it. He that's loves, he loves it. blood. He loves 35 millimeter. Yeah. He loves if you have you been to the New Beverly? We've all been to the New Beverly. I have amazing. Incredible, incredible place. <laughs> Didn't he in this in like multiple of his his scripts, doesn't he say like shown in brilliant 35 millimeter? Uh yes. Like written in the fucking script. Literally <laughs> written in the fucking script. <laughs> It's just, it's one of those things where like, he, again, going back to it, he just likes what he likes. He's like yeah. a curmudgeon old man who's like, I like it the way I like it. I like the thermostat at 64 and that's that. <laughs> like just very much, very much just for the sake of liking yeah. it. Really not for any other reason. Like he knows he can achieve so much more with digital. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> like, but this man is out here wasting everybody's time trying to get film. it on 35. I love people who still shoot on film. Never. I mean, we all love it. Yes. But also the way he shoots things. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Bro, <laughs> make your life easier. No, I respect him. I respect him and his neuroses. Isn't it curmudgeonly? I want it the way I want it. I want to know how much sleep Quentin Tarantino gets. Probably or two like, hours a I day. I want to know like what kind of sleeper he is. Like, does he toss and turn? Do you want to know something? Or is I, he someone with like a very set routine where he's like, I must have nine hours. It must be this temperature. I you am know? fully convinced that he has the sleep number mattress uh -huh. because I think he he and his wife are two very different people. I also want to know what it's like being in a fucking relationship with him. Also, like, again, back to Dak Shepard's podcast. It's not like we want to be him or anything. It's just the, the sheer fact that, no. like, he was on this this episode of Armchair Expert, and he was talking about how, for the longest time, he was really ugly, and he still is ugly, uh -huh. is what, this is what he was saying. But he's like, but I was ugly and poor, and then I got ugly and rich, and that's when it all started happening for me. <laughs> is the thing is is he is a self-aware man uh, yeah we got it we have to stand a self-aware king he is self-aware and he's very honest and yeah. i have a lot of respect for that and i've heard he's also like a secret 
sweetheart. Like he's very nice to his fans. I'm sure. And he's had a lot of girlfriends who none of them have anything bad to say about them. And they're big figures in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, so like. Yeah. And, you know, I have heard very minimal rumblings about mm-hmm. his um his like temperament on set right. he's just very focused is all i've heard it's just like focused and like if yeah. you make a mistake like it's over for you basically and but it's he not takes like big risks it's not like a whole thing it's not like oh my god you fuck this up it's like okay well bye yeah the only thing i've heard is the whole uma on kill bill oh and my the, god and the car the unsafe conditions like yes. i have heard about that yes um, which you know as huimin Please do not do this to him. And don't, don't do it to anybody. Don't do it to anybody, but especially like women who you want to feel really safe on exactly, your set. Yeah. Because in the past, there have been incredibly unsafe opportunities for women on uh-huh. set. Correct. That have put them in very uncomfortable situations and oftentimes dangerous situations. Yes. Just for the sake of wanting your sex object to look even more sexy. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, please stop. Yes, please, please, Quentin. Don't do this to Never Uma. Never again. <laughs> Never again. Not no, to Uma. Uma. Not to anyone. <laughs> Not to Uma. Not to anyone. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I fucking love Uma Thurman. I, I love, love her in the Kill Bill franchise. <laughs> Seriously. I also love that her daughter was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Bizarre. Very cute. So cute. Not just that, but like, um, uh, I don't know if you've seen Batman and Robin. <laughs> uh, yes. Where she plays Poison Ivy. Where she plays Poison Ivy. And Iconique. she does it so hilariously. I mean, that movie is bad. The only time I've ever hated Uma was when she was in Smash. Oh, Because yeah. I was really just like, what is what she are you doing, doing here? here? Like, get out of here. Uma, go do something better. None of us can pretend that you're more suited to play Marilyn Monroe than these other women. Do something else. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> but we uh, love ourselves Uma. We love Brad Pitt. We love Sam Jackson. I love uh, everybody who's in Quentin's movies. They're yeah, all fantastic. They're all phenomenal actors. They're all fucking profesh, seasoned, seasoned peeps. Um, and it's always such a treat to watch them time mm-hmm. and time again, like kind of transform themselves with every script that Quentin throws at them. Yes. The man has only made like 10 movies. He's made nine. He's made nine. He's gonna, he said he would stop at 10. So he's like next one. I don't I guess buy that over. he'll stop. I think he's too, I think he's too egomaniacal to stop. I think he might pull, <laughs> I say he's going to pull a Daniel Day-Lewis, which Daniel Day-Lewis has not done this, but I think he will. <laughs> And he'll say that he'll stop. And then 10 years later, he'll make something. I literally, I'm laughing at you because I genuinely don't think that Daniel Day-Lewis is going to come back. I think he will. I think he'll be like 75. No, I think he'll all of a sudden make like a really iconic cameo that he'll win a Best Supporting Acting Oscar for. And then he'll like go back into his home. I just think like Daniel Day-Lewis is so iconic. And he knows how iconic he is. He's like, I'm living off my residuals. He's not Australian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man i'm sure studios pay him to just read scripts uh, yeah, and probably. consider it <laughs> just just think about it here's six million dollars to think about yeah, it yeah here's 20 mil just think about it <laughs> read this on the toilet let Can us we get know. some feedback let us 20 know. mil thank you <laughs> make oh, some boy. shoes come back come back uh oh. quentin oh, i love quentin quentin really just He's doing everything that all all the film bros want to be doing. Yeah. He, really is. he has the career that all the film bros want. He's BFS with Robert Rodriguez. They have a whole thing going for him. Uh-huh. There he's really happy with his with his one child. Yeah. <laughs> Watching Despicable Me with uh-huh. his wife. Like and he he he's writing and 
uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the novel that he came out with. Yeah. It's not um, um the novel version of the movie. It's like a, a the a novel. Yeah. So it's it's based on the script that he wrote for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it features the same characters, but it is fully like a novelized like a novel. version. I want to read it. Um, me too. I saw it at Romans the other day. Um, which is the independent bookstore here in Pasadena of romans so good um but uh so he he's taking a stab at writing novels he's a no- novelist nar um <laughs> i think he's coming out with another book if i'm not mistaken as well not sure what that one's called <laughs> to be completely honest with you guys tbh tbh uh i don't know google it <laughs> google it uh and uh he you know i think that i think that he's he's living the life that a lot of specifically men want to live sometimes yeah. Sometimes I I think about how much influence he's had on our current Hollywood. (laughs) And I think about how every single human being in Hollywood that is making movies right now Mm -hmm. has been influenced by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. And it makes my head spin a little bit. I know, right? One man having that much influence being as, as honestly as young as he is. It's kind of insane. I know. He is not old. No, he's he is in his young. what, late 50s? I think he's in his early 50s. He's 58. Okay, yeah. So he's in his late, you're right. He's in his late 50s. He's 58 years old. He's he's a young boy. He's a yes. young boy. He's got a lot ahead of him. Many years, many experiences, <laughs> many movies. So Monica. Yes. What have you dabbled in? I've dabbled in a lot of things. I completely rearranged my entire apartment because I was so tired of things not being the way that I wanted them to be. Uh-huh. So I just rearranged it. I said, you know what? Fuck it. And so like last night I was up until like three in the morning, like just uh-huh. like rearranging things. It's funny because uh, I come here a lot, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Usually multiple times a week. Obviously. Um, but there's always something that's in a different place. Yeah. I think a lot of it is like just my so when i first moved here uh-huh. nothing was where it needed to be sure a big part of that is because my younger brother uh was living with us literally the second that we moved in yes yeah, uh, he angel. came to <laughs> shadow angel um he came to live with us for like a few months and so everything was kind of just like tossed around and right. nothing was put in its place we've only been living here since march like late march mind you all yeah um so i had never gotten a chance to like really like look at everything and be like, okay, like I places need to go in places. Uh-huh. Things need homes. So um, I find, you know, I, I did this thing where I just tossed all my furniture on the wall in the dining room. <laughs> so like the whole wall was completely covered by furniture. Yeah. And that was never the plan. I was like, I'm just going to put my furniture here that I'm definitely not selling and mm-hmm. putting it up against the wall. And then I had an idea for like what I wanted to do yeah. with all of my furniture. I just never like got around to doing it because- I had shit to do and like I wanted to buy a new chair and like a new table and new dining chairs and like all this other stuff. And so I've been very slowly accumulating my objects. Hmm. Um, And so I'm, I'm starting with the downstairs and then slowly working my way upstairs. It looks really nice. All completely unfinished. Thank you. I appreciate. I also (laughs) uh, completely organized my fridge. It's all in like clay plastic beans now. All right. I'm so sorry for those of you who have to witness and hear my terrible Australian accent. I'm not. I'm too far (laughs) in it now. The brand is here. It's just here. What is that? Okay. Can we share that Instagram account that um, is always posting Nicole Kidman memes slash random Australian memes? It's... Kevin J. Zach, Z-A-K. He's At Kevin J. Zach. 
he just like when the undoing came out and Nicole Kidman wearing the big green coat was being memed a lot. Ugh. He like capitalized on that and it became a whole thing. It became and now, a fucking sensation. He just makes, they're not even memes necessarily. I mean, a lot of them are, but like he makes the weirdest, but in most amazing niche references to things. Like I wanted to fucking scream over the picture that he had of Jan from the Brady Bunch <laughs> with Nicole Kidman playing Masha from, <laughs> from Nine Perfect Strangers and the caption is just Masha, Masha, Masha. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, who the fuck? How did you think of this it's shit? It's just like, it's iconic and I love it. And it's literally, I, I look at that account at least once or twice same, a day. Same, Even if there's nothing new, it's just fun to look back at all of the insanity. <laughs> all of the hashtag Arnor. Arnor. Pictures. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know what it is about the Australian accent. Um, it's I'm, stuck around. It's fun. It's just really fun and stupid. Yeah. I'm sorry to all my Aussies out there. It's just like, what <laughs> what sounds are you making with your mouth? Like, or? Or? What? It sounds like you have a, it literally sounds like you have a golf ball in your mouth yeah it's confusing and i love it <laughs> i love it uh, well well what have you dabbled oh. in <laughs> i mean i was in santa barbara over the weekend for a wedding that yeah. was fun so this is now i just want everyone to know this is now the <laughs> second time that jessica's gone to santa barbara and didn't take me okay well how about the next time we go together i don't believe you but okay, yes well, then i won't do it <laughs> <laughs> tell us how was the wedding jessica it was so good it was so chill to the point that like it made me it made me like anxious how chill it was oh my god like that was there like no structure there was no structure which was totally fine it's not like it was chaos or something like that it's just like the bride and groom don't really care which is fine but like they just like never had a first dance and like the cutting of the cake wasn't like a thing it was like they had the ceremony and then, it and was, then it was like, it okay. was just like a hangout till you're done. Wow. <laughs> See, as someone who really loves order exactly. and like stability, that would give me a lot of anxiety. Like there was no rehearsal dinner. Nobody knew where they were walking down the aisle. They were just like, well, when you get there, just walk to the altar. It's right there. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like, you know, that thing 10 feet down the line. Yeah. Walk to that. It's right there. Walk to that. <laughs> That's what it was, wow. which is, it really worked for them. But uh, the whole time I was just like, Cause I was there with my friend who was the maid of honor and I just kept asking her, I was like, okay, so do we need it? Cause I was there to, you know, help you're the, if you're I the could. plus one. You're the yeah. Plus one. yeah. And, um, but there was like, she Nothing. was like, I don't know. There's no structure. <laughs> wow. I know that's ballsy. Yeah. That is very, very ballsy. It was really fun though. I, I love Santa Barbara. Uh, Santa Barbara is such a vibe. It's so expensive. It really is, but it's beautiful. You need mm. to like, you need to be in an Nancy Myers movie to be able to move to You either need to be a U UCSB student living yeah. on Isla Vista. Yeah. Or you need to be a millionaire. Or in a Nancy Myers film. Correct. 100%. Yeah. So will you be moving to Santa Barbara anytime soon? Not anytime soon, but who knows what the future holds. What's in the future? <laughs> My millions. Oh, right. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yes, when this podcast becomes- don't, don't disrespect my millions. So sorry, so sorry. <laughs> How much money are you making from this podcast? Uh, next question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, sorry, I'm not seeing any of the millions. So I'm just, I'm just they wondering. They haven't come yet. I'm manifesting them. Oh, manifestation. Yeah. Right. I'm so sorry. Manifesting millions. <laughs> manifestation station. <laughs> my bad. Uh, well well that was quintin that was quintin i hope you guys enjoyed that i was really happy talking about uh 
him because again, he's my Taylor Swift. Me so too. what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna do? What well, are you gonna do? As always, don't, don't sue us, Daddy Favreau. Favreau. Bye, Monica. <laughs> Bye, Jessica. <laughs>